Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 10th, 2014. Piecing together a theme was very difficult today, so I wasn't able to accomplish it. We're going with a themeless episode. And if you have to know, I actually prefer the themed episodes of Fighting for the Faith. The themeless ones are interesting, but I prefer to grind on a theological or doctrinal topic. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And there's sadly no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and see if what people are saying actually squares with what God's Word says. Think of it this way. You know, Sunday only comes around, you know, once a week. And uh, once a week, you, you get the kids out of bed, you you take a shower. I mean, if you only bathe once a week, I mean, it's kind of a big deal, you know, to go to church because that's going to be the one day you're going to need to bathe. But, you, you know, you, you, you get everybody into the, the family minivan and you head off to church. And, uh, you know, you're you're giving up time in your morning. And and you, you, the idea is, is, is it worth even waking up for? You know, it's kind of an important question. Well, if all you're going to get is false doctrine, if all you're going to get is me-centered, narcissistic eisegesis and, you know, verses ripped out of context, and you're not actually going to be taught what God's Word truly says, how does this help you in your Christian discipleship? Does it help you in your Christian discipleship? <laughs> yeah, it probably doesn't help it at all. And see, you know, God has commanded pastors to preach the word. And uh, disciples of Jesus who are teachers in his church are commanded to, you know, preach the word and to teach those things that Christ has truly commanded. So, you know, we've kind of lost this idea that, you know, hey, listen, to be a disciple of Jesus in you know in many respects not the only thing but in many respects is about being a learner a learner about what Jesus has taught what God's word really says and can you actually say that you're a good disciple of Jesus if the thing that you are listening to and dedicating yourself to as far as church and worship and and what you're being taught isn't what God's word really says what kind of discipleship is that? Well, that would be discipleship into false doctrine, discipleship into false teaching, discipleship that actually pulls you away from God rather than leads you towards him, discipleship that takes you your focus off of Jesus 
And if that's what's you know the the flavor of your discipleship is, is that really Christian discipleship? Think about it. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to do a little bit something different uh, in hour number one. And what I mean is, uh, oftentimes, you know, when we in hour number one, we have these interesting little segments that we play. We'll have a couple of interesting little segments we'll play before the first break. And then coming out of that uh, break, we're going to spend some time listening to Perry Noble's leadership podcast and we'll i think we're going to do this in two segments i actually kind of want to cover what he's doing here and he's talking about the importance of vision casting and how you make the vision come true and stuff like that and you got to keep in mind perry noble is a guy who well he postures himself as a pastor to pastors and so who's listening to this podcast of perry noble regarding leadership well i would say hundreds and thousands of people who call themselves pastors. Um, and then, of course, the question I have is, where is vision casting taught in the Bible again? Because the, one of the things that you'll notice is missing as we listen to Perry Noble wax eloquent about vision casting and making the vision come true and what the steps are for that is that there is no Bible open it's as if he just assumes, well, hey, listen, whatever's working out there in the business world, it's got to work in the church because I've had a burden in my heart about it. Yeah, so we're going to spend that time doing that. And then we're going to head down to the Verve in hour number two. It's been a while since we've done a, uh, a sermon review from the Verve. And uh, we're going to be listening to a sermon about having margin in your life. Yeah, I... I yeah I don't I'm not sure <laughs> not sure where all those margin passages are in the Bible so we'll see if um the the leader the seeker driven leader from the Verve in uh, Las Vegas if he's able to point us to Jesus and if if the discipleship that we're hearing taking place at the Verve on uh, on Sunday morning is the type of discipleship that brings us deeper into God's word, a better understanding of what God has taught and also what God's will is for our lives. Is it God's will for you to have margin? I mean, it might be, but um, if, is, if it really is important that you have margin in your life, then you know we need to understand what that means biblically. And so we'll see uh, what we do there in hour number two. Not sure where this one ends because I've listened to about half of the sermon and I've purposely left out the other half because I want to see where he goes with this. And I wanted to kind of do one of those reviews in real time kind of thing. I do that from time to time here at Fighting for the Faith. So I have no idea how this one's going to end. No clue. And, uh, you know, you never know. You might pull out a biblical text at the end and and you'll go, oh, of course, that's what margin is. <laughs> Of course, you know, I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm just off the top of my head, you know, thinking if you're talking about margin, the way he's talking about it, I mean, maybe you can talk about the Sabbath rest or something like that. But still, what he's doing with it is not, in fact, not biblical at all. All right. So that's what we're going to do on today's. Oh, I forgot to tell you what the two interesting little things that we're going to start off with are. We are going to begin with a Heidi Baker update. Heidi Baker of Shaba fame or Shaba. And uh, and we're going to be listening to a recent sermon that she delivered at uh, a church in Tennessee. And uh, and then we'll do a money-grubbing televangelist update. Have you heard of Dr. Jazz? 
Yeah, I, I had neither until uh, today. And Dr. Jazz apparently is somebody who's um, who was a featured speaker at T.D. Jakes's Woman Thou Art Loosed conference. Uh, you know, Christine Kane was there uh, telling you to uh, overcome the, the power of your frogs. And um, with Jazz here, she actually uh, preached, uh, Dr. Jazz, sorry, Dr. Jazz. She preached at the Potter's House, uh, which is T.D. Jakes's um, church. Uh, yeah, put that in air quotes. And um, what we're going to be listening to is her narcissizing, um the story from Genesis where the Lord appears to Abram and tells Sarah about this time next year you will have a child. Yeah, and what Dr. Jazz does with that is oh so very narcissistic and just not even sound at all. And of course, the qu- the question that's on the table today is, you know, is this contributing to true Christian discipleship or is this actually drawing us away from Christ and filling our heads with false doctrine and things like that? So that's how we're going to spend today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And we're going to go ahead and get right into it. And so since we're starting off with a Heidi Baker update, that requires us to do this. So I was having this wedding and and we had, we, well, we didn't have, we That's right. That's our Heidi Baker update music. And um, yeah, let's just say when she appears at uh, you know different venues and churches, you just never know what it is that you're going to hear. In fact, we're going to start with uh, Heidi Baker. If you've ever watched her on YouTube, she has this tendency when she appears at churches, she begins on her knees in prayer. And so we're going to kind of pick up at the tail end of this prayer that she's praying and then she'll get into her message and we'll you know again we're kind of asking the question does this contribute to or actually diminish true christian discipleship here's uh, heidi baker here we go to see hearts to feel god shake 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 wake up wake up wake up wake up sleeping beauty yeah by the way that gibberish there that supposedly is the uh, the the gift of tongues it actually isn't and if she really actually was speaking in tongues um, what she's doing since she's, this is at a church during a church service, God's word actually requires that if somebody's going to deliver a message in tongues, that there must be an interpreter, must be. And since there isn't, she's actually uh, run afoul of what God's word commands regarding this gift. Wake up, sleeping beauty. Shake I hear that. 
Oh, often, often over America. I hear that again over this place. Wake up, sleeping beauty. Wake up, wake up, wake up. I feel like the Lord wants to shake America and wake America. Shake America and wake America. Shake it up. I saw a vision last night. I saw it again this morning of this river, a red river. I had, I had forgotten, hey, that when I came here, here uh years ago show we were in the car <laughs> yeah apparently all those little outbursts way whoa shabba um that's supposedly i don't know what it is it, it kind of reminds me of i remember the uh, pillsbury doughboy you know you, you know they, they showed him and then you, they put, show a finger like touching his tummy and go <laughs> yeah anyway so it's like i i think that's kind of like the spiritual equivalent of the pillsbury doughboy going on here with heidi baker every time she gets the whoa going on that's supposedly the finger of the holy spirit poking her or something Again, this isn't biblical. This is nowhere taught in Scripture. And this is not a true manifestation of God, the Holy Spirit. Becky and Jeff, and I kept seeing Red River and Red Robin, and I was confused. I didn't know what it meant. And and there was a bird in a car ahead of us, and it was just flying all around the car. And the Lord was just saying, show, there's something about Holy Spirit being released, in greater measure over Tennessee. And this river, a red river, it, it represents the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. Jesus and the oil of his presence and and the glory of his love and it's being released out 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 of Tennessee out of this place it is a river of his presence whoa and so a river of the holy spirit's presence is being released out of Tennessee which direction is it flowing north south east west or you know maybe northeast or yeah which which direction is that uh, flowing uh, could you tell us Many, many people are going to be saved. Shake Araba, there'll be a great in and a great show, a great harvest, a great harvest again, a great harvest again. Shake Araba and there's something about this depth of intimacy of the people. Whoa, coming together in worship, coming together in adoration. Shikaraba that will awaken the bride to love, that will awaken in the bride to love. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Lord, we ask, Father, that you would take us up and in today, God. Up and in, up and in. Up and in. I wonder if Dr. Michael Brown thinks that this is authentic fire, you know? Thank you, Jesus. Up and in. Whoa. <laughs> yes, Lord. <laughs> and now she's apparently um, marinating in the glory or something. She's just kind of gone still, gathering her thoughts clearly as as something has euphorically overcome her. doesn't make for great radio, but it's one of these things. If you could watch this, it's just, yeah, what does this have to do with God, the Holy Spirit? Answer, nothing. This is not an authentic manifestation of God, the Holy Spirit. This is a false sign, false wonder from a woman who's a false prophet. Yeah. <laughs> 
Thank you, Jesus. I, uh, <laughs> and though it seems holy, it seems hard. <laughs> oh. And there's that creepy demonic laughter. Holy, holy. To pause in the Western church. <laughs> hey, I like waiting. I like waiting. <laughs> I like waiting till I hear. And I was, I was listening and, hey, I feel like God um, spoke to me something. I'm trying to th- look how long. I'm good. Oh, you have a red clock. I always look for those in churches. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> one time, one went backwards. <laughs> that was wonderful. <laughs> they- I mean, could you imagine, you know, you, you show up at church one morning and this is your uh, your guest speaker and this is what you're hearing. What do you do in a situation like this? Do you stay and think, well, you know, what we can do is, you know, we can kind of, you know, keep the meat and spit out the bones. Yeah, there's, I don't think there's any meat here. Um, yeah. They said you have more time. They didn't say it. They just kept putting the clock back. <laughs> I had a blast with that. Hey, whoa, well, I'm a little lover of Jesus in the in the bush of, of Mozambique. Um, not compared to Jeff and Heidi. They're really in the bush bush. I'm out there a couple days a week um, in the villages, but we live in Pemba, Mozambique. We're going on 20 years in Mozambique now. Hallelujah. Yes, it's just a joy. I love what God's doing. Um, Shay. Yeah, so the poor people of Mozambique are being influenced by the false teaching, false manifestations of the Holy Spirit um, by this woman. I feel like everything, everything's got to come out of the presence. And I want to speak to you about being undone in the presence, about living in the glory, about carrying the glory of God. Do you want to carry the glory of God? Just, uh, just a fresh, a fresh wave, a fresh wave of his presence. There's so much presence in this place and, and there's so much presence all, all around just this whole region that it, it seems show that people could almost get used to it. Okay. And, and there's something about, um, being awakened to love and understanding that as you dwell in the presence, you can always go deeper. You can always go deeper into inside the heart of God. And that's what I want us to do today. And so show, I feel like I'm going to share from Exodus 33. Ha. It has to do with a lot of things. Um, over my own life and over what God wants to do, even in this place. And then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought out out of Egypt and go to a land I promised you on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give you to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Go out to the land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to start there. 
What was the first thing that happened? Moses was given a radical promise from God. Have any of you had any prophetic words in this place? <laughs> come on, come on. Nobody even raised their hand. Prophetic words, right. So apparently we're all supposed to receive prophetic words just the way Moses did. Now, I wanted to read to you um, the passage I was you know, referring to. Um, regarding the fact that what she's doing is completely contradicted by Scripture. Here's what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26. So what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn or a lesson or a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation, let all things be done for building up. If any speak a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself in God, and God. Uh-huh. And Paul ends this section of First uh, Corinthians with these words. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So there's uh, Heidi Baker, you know, you know, with these weird blurts and outbursts, and and uh, and you know, claiming that she's speaking in tongues, and yet what she's doing is patently, straight up, forbidden by God's word. And Paul makes it very clear: if anyone thinks they're spiritual, they need to acknowledge that what he's written is an actual command from God. If not, that person should not be recognized. Why is Heidi Baker being allowed to do this nonsense at a church service when God's word forbids it? We've had them. This is a house. This is a, a hot house. This is a house of the prophetic. This is a house of the presence. This is a house of the glory. So we've heard the prophetic words and they're powerful. We got to hold on to them. Shake it off. Don't let them go. I see some people, they just have bags of prophetic words and they get weighed down. And it's like, when are they going to happen? I'm carrying around all these prophecies and it's getting later and I don't know. I'm going to fall out under the weight of the prophetic words. <laughs> Roland and I were in, in um, Reading um, two years ago, I remember, and this prophet got up and he started prophesying over us. And we, ha we have a house up there. We were given this house. Yeah, Reading would be Bethel where Bill Johnson holds court. That's really amazing. And um, <laughs> isn't that nice? <laughs> Someone gave us a house. Wow. So they were prophesying. And by the time, I mean, they were saying, and the Lord's giving you China. And then there's going to be campuses all over America. By the time he was done, I, I was so laughing in the spirit. I was like, I'm going to have to be 682 to carry that word. I mean, it was beyond, beyond, beyond. And I was like, Lord, I, I believe you, Jesus. But I, I don't understand. But I believe you, Jesus. But I don't understand. But I believe you, Jesus. But I don't understand. Yeah, there's nothing to understand. It's real simple to explain. That was what we call a false prophecy. Straight up. So there you go. Another installment of Heidi Baker's bizarre outbursts, all claiming that these are from God, the Holy Spirit, and nothing could be further from the truth. You know, so, um, yeah, you know, again, the question that's on the table is, um, is if 
if this is all about discipleship, that you know we're to make disciples of all nations, is what you just heard something that contributes to and helps build somebody up in the Christian faith and makes them a sound disciple of Jesus? Or instead, does it actually lead them away from Christ and uh, what the Bible actually teaches? Just, you know, think about that. You know, since we're all supposed to be disciples, a disciple is a learner. Did we really learn anything that Christ wants us to learn and hear from Heidi Baker? Yeah, I don't think so. Moving along. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pyjamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira, now the Deutschmark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. There is nothing quite as beautiful as cash. Some people say it's folly, but I'd rather have the lolly. With money you can make a splash. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. Money, money, money. There's nothing like a newly minted pound. Money, money, money. Everyone must anger for the bunchness of a banker. It's accountancy that makes the world go round, round, round. round you can keep your Marxist ways, but it's only just a phrase. For it's money, money, money makes the world go round. Money, 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 money. That's the uh, Monty Python money song. Okay, so uh, what we're going to be listening to is uh, one of the featured speakers from the Woman Thou Art Loose conference. She actually, uh, Dr. Jazz, apparently pastors her own church, something about Jericho something. Anyway, she's recently spoke at uh, T.D. Jakes's The Potter's House. And what we're going to be listening to is her take on Genesis chapter 18. Let me read the text so we can kind of see what's going on and see after, you know, if after we've looked at the context of the passage she's referencing, if what she's saying actually is in agreement and what this passage really means. So here we go. Genesis chapter 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abram by the oaks of Mamre, As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought in and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servants. So they said, Do as you have said." Abraham went quickly to the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it, make some cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf, and he prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, She shall indeed, shall I indeed bear a son now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Okay, this is the text that uh, Dr. Jazz was apparently preaching on at uh, T.D. Jakes's The Potter's House. 
and see if her handling of this text and what it apparently means is actually what it says and what it does mean. Here we go. But this time, next year, I just need about a thousand of y'all to do me a favor. And can you watch your watch? Can you look at the time that you got right now and find out what month and what day it is? Because by this time next year, you're about to give birth to something that you've never given birth to before. You're about to give birth to something that you've never given birth to before. So just because you read this text that apparently the people there at the potter's house are going to give birth to something like Sarah. Hmm. Yeah, that's what that passage means. I'm sure of it. Don't you? Aren't you sure of it? I, I'm sure of it. You know. I need about 500 of you who said nay, but this shout is for next year. This place is for next year. This holler is for next year. You ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah, she's working them up into a frenzy, but uh, this has nothing to do with what that text actually says or and or means. Come on, find you three people. Say next year, next year, next year. Come on, say next year, next year, next year. He's got one year to open a door. He's got one year to make a way out of nowhere. He's got one year to perform a miracle. But there's a thousand of you who said, I'm going to praise him in 2014 for what's about to happen in 2015. Yeah, um, yeah, listen, um, 2014 and 2015 really have nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that the Lord said to Sarah that uh, about this time next year I will return and you will surely have a son. Yeah, see, 2014, 2015, when what's happening currently has nothing to do with that biblical text whatsoever. You're deceiving these people. I bet you're making a lot of money doing it, too. Because I have not seen, it have not heard, it hasn't entered our hearts. Yeah, yourself in the future has nothing to do with Genesis chapter 18. I look better in the future than I did in my past. Somebody ought to holler, I look better in my future. Uh-huh, all right. Let's uh, listen to another one. Here we go. Come on, tell you never say I look better in my future. That's why the devil tried to kill me last year. That's why he tried to destroy me last month. Because he already sees me in my future. And I look better in my future than I look in my... Yeah, how far into your future do you look better? Because, I mean, if Christ continues to tarry, you know, I don't look better in my future. In fact, you know, five years from now, I'm older. Uh, maybe even dead, you know. Um, so you know, you go too far into the future, and I'm not looking too good, you know. Like my body's decaying, and it's sitting in a box underground. Um, you sure I look better in my future? 
past. Call your neighbor by the shoulder and say, this holler is not for my past. It's for my future. Because my future is greater than my past. And the only reason why the devil reminds me of my past is because he doesn't know my future. Because if he knew my future... Didn't you say that, just say that the devil sees you, looks, is coming after you because you look better in the future? Yeah, you're contradicting yourself in this little weird uh, narcissistic rant. He'll leave my past. <laughs> yeah, now she's prowling the stage. Yeah, she's she knows she's got everybody just literally looking out of her hand. Bad. Come on, sit down. But this time, ne- uh, next year, you are going to give birth to a dream. Yeah, no, actually, uh, Sarah actually gave birth to a son. His name was uh, Isaac in Hebrew, Itzhak. Um yeah, there's nothing in there. Just because I've read Genesis 18 doesn't mean that God's about ready to give birth to a dream I have about this time next year. That's not what that text means at all. By this time next year, your book is going to be on the shelf. Y'all didn't hear me. Yeah, that's not what Genesis 18 is about. This time next year, you're moving from the lake, from the borough to the lender. But this time next year... Yeah, again, that has nothing to do with Genesis 18. You ain't no longer ask anybody to do anything for you because God is going to reposition you and everything you need is coming your way. I- oh, yeah, yeah. This, this is what it sounds like to scratch itching ears. And she makes a lot of money doing this. This is what it means to teach for shameful gain the things you ought not to teach. Yeah, that's a biblical text I just quoted there. About 50 people in here to holler next year! In fact, in fact, I don't know how y'all do it here, but would you do me a favor? And would you get your iPhone out? And would you take a selfie? And would you upload it so you can let them know this is as broke as you'll ever look? This is as crazy as you'll ever look. This is as jacked up as you'll ever look. Would you put it on Twitter, Instagram, and tell your neighbor, say, you ain't seen nothing yet. This is just my beginning. Oh, man. Wow. It's just when I'm getting started. Yeah, I'm just getting started. I got to hear a little bit more of this. I mean, this is crazy. And the promise, which is the child. Yeah, as you can tell, we fast forward a little bit into the promise that is the child. Good. Oh, uh, okay. It didn't just show up. But it started growing. I don't know. I don't know who I came to preach to this morning. But yeah, well, you came to preach to anybody who would write you a large check or start throwing money at you. There's a season where everything is gonna start growing in your life. Oh, Yeah, there we go. Another false manifestation of tongues. Yeah, just remember. Uh, First uh, Corinthians chapter 14 says that this is not to be permitted at all. And of course, if you call yourself spiritual, you've got to agree that what Paul wrote is actually a command from the Lord. She's disobeying the Lord straight up. 
I said, tell your neighbor, say, it's about to grow. Everything, the anointing is growing. The ministry is growing. My family is growing. My finances grow. My joy, my peace, and the child. Yeah, and the long list of things that you're going to be held accountable for on the day of judgment. That's growing too, you know, Dr. Jazzy. Have you ever considered that Christ is actually paying attention to what you're doing and every word, every little false word coming out of your mouth, you're going to have to give an accounting to him for? The the promise that was in the past is now in my present and the promise which is the child has brought me joy oh god can y'all see her oh jesus can y'all see on sunday morning because you know they used to talk about her when she didn't have a child and she had an old man ah but this sunday when she showed up at the potter's house Somebody say, what you got in your hand? I promise, God help me. I wish I had. Would you touch it? What you got in your possession? I promise. Can you touch it and say, all I got is a promise. I don't know when he's going to do it. I don't know how he's going to do it. But all I got is God is not a man that he should lie. Not a son of man. Yeah, it's, God doesn't lie. But see, the thing is, Genesis 18 doesn't promise you some promise for next year. Wow. So uh, I think you kind of get what's going on there. And uh, like I said, she's going to have to give an accounting to Jesus for all of this stuff that she said in his name and uh, the promises that she was making for God that he never actually made. So uh, let's ask the question again. Uh, Christian discipleship. Were the people at the potter's house rightly discipled, deeply discipled, correctly discipled? Did their discipleship go up or down after hearing... Dr. Jazz Narsajit, uh, the story of Sarah being told that she would have a son about this time next year. Think about it. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a Perry Noble update. We're going to be listening to him talking about vision casting. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Bird Cage Theater presents Church Day Select. I don't know why we have to come to these small group sessions. They're just so boring. Hey, if you
you find that small groups just aren't that interesting or fun anymore? That's quite literally what I just said. Then we have the product just for you. New from Most Lobos Ministries is Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs. Well, what is it? Simple. Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs are an entire booklet loaded with fill-in-the-blank Bible passages. Aren't we supposed to read the scriptures the way they were originally written? None of you want to spice up your small group Bible studies. With Beth Moore's Biblical Mad Libs, you can make every passage be about you. Isn't scripture about Jesus? Only if you want it to be. In our postmodern age, it's stupid to think that such a thing as absolute truth actually exists. Every passage is open to interpretation. Read the example. But now that you have been set free from financial debt and have become warriors of God, the fruit you get leads to better sex and eternal life. For the wages of sin are smelly diapers, but the free gift of God is a really good tax return in Jesus Christ our Lord. That was absolutely heretical. Why would anyone butcher scripture like this? Because modern-day Christians like you don't endure sound doctrine. By popular demand, you've appointed leaders in the church who've given your itching ears what they want to hear and haven't looked back since. Ha! Suckers! This is just horrible. If you thought it couldn't get any worse, then you're just as foolish as Naval. We've already expanded the Biblical Mad Lib franchise to include alternate Bible translations. That can't be good. You're right! It isn't! We now have Biblical Mad Libs in The Voice, the NIV, the KJV, the NKJV, and, for a limited time only, we have the Furtick Audaciously Revised Translation. Wait, doesn't that last one spell? Yes, it does spell fun. Not just fun for you, but for the entire small group. We've even created a Biblical Mad Libs Junior Edition to get the kids twisting scripture from a young age. I would never buy this for my children. Lucky for you, you don't have to. We're handing out free copies to every youth group in the nation. Plus, we're also including a special copy of Elevation Church's The Code Coloring Book for a little extra heretical flavor. You're not going to get away with this. You can't stop us. We're already in control. Resistance is futile. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Roseborough here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Morning. Listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if you're really not being discipled as a Christian. Think about it. Just a 
reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Time for a Perry Noble update. It really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flower. All right, that's our uh, Perry Noble update music. Now, we're going to be listening to uh, Perry Noble's uh, leadership podcast, and we're going to hear him talking about, well, the four phases of um, essential and effective vision. Four phases that are essential to effective vision. Let me let's ask a question here. Okay, off the top of your head. Um, would you prefer your pastor get his marching orders from God's word regarding what he's supposed to do as a pastor? Or would you prefer that he gets his marching orders from, you know, popular level business books that he can pick up at Barnes and Noble? Which would you prefer? Um, that he obey what God's word says regarding the pastoral office, or if he just, you know, decides to be really pragmatic and, you know, go ahead and adopt what the business world is doing in Fortune 500 companies and, you know, popular leaders and CEOs and stuff like that in the business world. Do you, do you think, that, which would you prefer? Because the church really isn't a business. The church exists for something completely different than a business exists. And CEOs are not the secular equivalent to a pastor. The responsibilities are way different. The job is way different, and the, well, let's put it this way, the job description for the pastoral office, that's all found in Scripture, not in a popular-level business book. But apparently this little factoid seems to have completely um, you know, been lost on Perry Noble, and he's decided that all on his own, and his own authority, he can just, you know, you know, teach things to other pastors that he thinks are important rather than abiding by what God's word says regarding the pastoral office. Think about that as we listen to the four phases that are essential for effective vision. Here's the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. Here we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Perry Noble Leadership Podcast. Bang! Bang! Bang, we feel good about uh, I did. Today's. I did bang in honor of, of it's, it's November. It is November. Turkeys. Turkeys. Shooting turkey. Dead Thanksgiving. turkeys. Thanksgiving. Dead vegan, turkeys on your table. If you're a vegan, you can have some broccoli. Do they make soy turkey? Ooh. I don't know. Somebody Google that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't want any of that. Yeah, that would be the worst thing ever. Uh, but anyway, we're excited to be with you. Uh, thanks for listening. And today we're going to talk about uh, the four phases that are essential uh, for effective vision. You know, Perry, for anyone in leadership to be effective, 
they must have and be able to cast a compelling vision. And okay, um, okay, just that statement. In order for someone to be effective as a leader, they must have and cast effective vision. Which biblical text says that regarding pastors? Where in the history of the church have all the vision-casting leaders, pastors been? Because, I mean, this is a new development. This is something that just has literally showed up in the last 15, 20 years, right? Huh, weird. Um, so why is he teaching this to other pastors as if this is what God wants them to do when I can't think of a single passage in Scripture that actually says what it is he's saying? And ask others to get involved in making it come to life. So today we're going to talk about those four phases that are essential for effective vision. So let's just jump right in, Perry. What is the first phase? Yeah, there are four phases of vision. In the first four, four phases of vision. Where are the four phases of vision taught in Scripture? Where are they found in God's Word? Which book or books are they found in? Well, I, I can't find them in the pastoral epistles. That would be First and Second Timothy in the book of Titus. Where are these four phases of um Effective vision found in Scripture. The answer, this isn't found anywhere in Scripture. Then if it's not found in Scripture, why are pastors adopting this as if this is what God wants them to do? First phase is it should happen. It should happen. Um, I've got some notes here too, um, and I wrote this down. Vision begins with a person looking at a situation and actually believing in their hearts that someone should do something about it. Yeah, that sounds really amazing. Um, but again, pastors are those who are called by Christ to preach the word, administer the sacraments, you know, discipline sinners, forgive sins, you know, things like that. Um, I don't recall in any passage of scripture regarding pastors in Christ's church that they are to just feel like something's on their heart that they've just got to go and do, you know, and, and then, you know, that's their vision, then they're supposed to cast it. Um, it gets to the point where they're almost bothered by it. Uh, a biblical example of this would be Nehemiah. Um, if you, yeah, that's kind of reading into the Nehemiah text. If you're a visionary leader, that's probably one of your favorite books in the Bible, if you're a Bible person. Um, if Nehemiah, the whole... Yeah, keep this in mind. Nehemiah wasn't a pastor in Christ's church. Just keep that in mind book starts out with a problem. Nehemiah asked his brothers, hey, how's it going in Jerusalem? And they said, hey, the walls are damaged and it's a problem. And it bothered Nehemiah that it got to the point where I'm sure, and the Bible doesn't say this, but it infers this, that Nehemiah is probably thinking someone should probably go do something about that. It should not be that way. Um, some more modern examples are I remember um, when we had Christine Kane here from the A21 campaign, uh, and she tells the story. If you've ever heard um, Chris speak, she talks about walking through the airport and seeing the pictures of girls that were lost and um, finding out that those girls were most likely caught up in the sex slave trade and her thinking somebody should do something about that. The yeah, I, I understand that when you see a need in the world and you want to serve your neighbor, somebody should do something about that. There's nothing wrong with desiring to help your neighbor, especially your your neighbors who are in need, you know, those who are caught up in the sex trade and things like that. But again, where in the Bible does it say pastors are supposed to receive a vision that they're supposed to effectively cast to the people below them? Yeah, just pointing to 
the fact that there's people who felt something needed to be done about, you know, slavery or the sex trade or things like that, doesn't actually make this a biblical thing that pastors are supposed to be adopting for themselves. Pastoral office is an established office, and it was established at the time of the apostles, and that office has specific duties that are laid out in Scripture, and vision casting is not one of them. The whole vision, A21, um, exists, and it's an unbelievable organization that rescues people from human trafficking, but it, it all started because a woman said it, it should happen. Um, our church started with a conversation. Um, a young lady asked me one time after we did a youth event, I used to be a youth pastor, and on a Wednesday night, uh, she came up and asked me, um, hey, Pierre, I got a question. Why can't church be fun? She said, Wednesday nights are so much fun. Um, I love bringing my friends to Wednesday nights. Uh, I feel like everything engages. Why can't Sundays be like Wednesdays? And that was a part of a process that started in me where I was like, you know what? Church should be exciting. Church should be relevant. Stop. Um, Church should be exciting. Should implies that there's some kind of a standard that that the church needs to be living up to. Where in Scripture does it say God's church? It should, quote-unquote, be exciting. And what does exciting mean? Who determines what the definition of exciting is or what that standard is and how then the church should meet that standard? Church should, and I got this vision in my heart and in my mind of, you know what, I don't think church should be the most boring, irrelevant lifeless hour of a person's week. So praising God, singing hymns, hearing God's word rightly exegeted, receiving the Lord's Supper, that technically qualifies as the most boring hour of their week? Hmm. Yet if you're a disciple of Jesus, those are the very things that, well... The church has been doing from the beginning. You think about Acts chapter two; they dedicated to themselves. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, the prayers. Yeah, this is what the church does and has done for a long time. And just because you're bored with it, maybe the problem isn't that the church is boring. Maybe it's that you don't really care about hearing God's word rightly taught. I think if the tomb is empty that our church services and our attitude should reflect it. And so in my heart, um, during that time period, God started developing the, it should happen. And so, oh, so everything that's happening over new spring, that was God developed that into your heart as it should happen. And of course, now you're teaching this to other people. So it should happen. So if your church doesn't, you know, do uh, secular cover songs, you know, like ACDC's hell's bells on uh, <clears throat> Easter Sunday, uh, they don't have, you know, American Idol karaoke uh, contest during church services. Yeah, and, you know, and, you know, preach on movies and things like that. Um, then, you know, you're, you're not living up to that new standard that it's, your church should be exciting. So any leader um, that's going to do an effective job leading, I believe it's got to come from a conviction somewhere down deep in their heart that it's not about the money, it's not about the recognition, it's about I see a problem. Someone should do something about it, and maybe God's calling me to do something about it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever it takes to make that happen. Um, one thing I'd ask about uh, in regards to, so let's say you're a leader and you're sensing this, how can you tell if this is just something that is 
something that bothers you because it should just bother all of us and something that maybe God's trying to tell you, no, this is more than it just should bother you. This is something I want you to internalize and it's going to continue to bother you. Yeah. So how do you know whether or not that thing that's bugging you is, well, you know, an actual vision from God uh, or, um, or just you're just being upset because you're petty. Yeah. You see what I'm saying here? Um, again, where in Scripture are we led to believe that pastors are to receive unique and specific visions from God regarding how to do church? There's no text that says that. Christ is the one who's cast the vision when he said, go and make disciples of all nations. How does exciting entertainment contribute to making disciples? Um until you do something about it. That's a great question, Shane. Um, who is it? Uh, the, the author of E-Myth. I can't think of his name Michael right now. Michael Gerber. Michael Gerber. Um, the E-Myth by Gerber. Yeah, I've read it. Um, yeah, it's got some pretty nice information if you're running a business. The baby food guy. That was awesome. Michael Gerber. He talks about it. I, I'm going to probably mess this word up. The entrepreneurial seizure. That's right. Is that what it is? That's what it is. Golly, boom, I'm hooked on phonics. Anyway, he talked. Yeah, Gerber's entrepreneurial seizure is nowhere found in Scripture. Why are you teaching this to pastors as if this is what pastors need to be doing? Talks about how somebody, some people go into business um, and they just do it, um, and that, that's why there's four phases of this vision. Because when you see that something should happen, um, that's not an indication that you need to dive into it immediately. Yep. It's just so many times. When you see something that should happen, it's it's um, if you're a Christian leader, it really is the Lord speaking to your heart, preparing you. Um, like for example, um, somebody might be listening to this podcast and they go, "Okay, well, somebody should plant a church. I'm gonna go plant a church." Well, uh, maybe um, I think church planting should happen. It should be done, but that's why um, there's four phases of yeah. this of this. Vision. Yeah, yeah, there's four phases. Again, you keep – oh, that's why there's four phases. Where did the four phases come from again? Why are you pointing – oh, well, listen, that could be from God. But remember, there's four phases. Where did God reveal that there's four phases to effective vision? Hmm? I don't recall the Bible laying this out. Why are you teaching as if this is somehow a biblical standard that pastors are supposed to abide by? Yeah, see, when you start asking these questions, you realize that the whole practice of vision casting – it comes to us from outside of God's Word. It is a foreign ecclesiology, not a biblical ecclesiology, and it actually wars against the biblical ecclesiology. That's a great segue, uh, and I'm, I'm glad we took a second to talk about that. So let's talk about phase two. What is phase two? Phase, phase two is it could happen. So phase one is it should happen. Phase two is it could happen. And this is where... Um, a leader begins to develop ideas, thoughts, and plans and begins to have conversations with people to see whether or not um, they're crazy. I remember going through this phase of it, it could happen where I had an idea for a church um, like, like we're doing at New Spring Church, but I didn't know if it could happen or not because I, I, I never had seen that before. And so I began, I started having some conversations with some people that were really close to me and started saying, Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? I mean, godly people who love Jesus, who would tell me the truth. 
Um, it's not like the person that somebody told them they could sing all in their life. Aren't you glad that, you know, Perry Noble himself has been through all four phases of the essential parts of effective vision? I mean, he's been on this journey before. Again, my question is, where again does God reveal those four phases? And we got to remember those four phases. And, and so the uh, it should happen, it could happen phase. Uh, where does Scripture lay these out again? Their life, and then they made it to American Idol, and America laughed at them. Um, and these people were telling me, Peter, I think that I think that could happen. I think that could happen. And then I discovered two books um, right about the same time. Uh, the first book was Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren, which puts forward this false Drucker invented ecclesiology. Most people don't know he wrote Purpose Driven Church. They're more familiar with Purpose Driven Life, but Purpose Driven Church was a 399 page book. Um, at the time, I think it's the longest. It might be the longest book I've ever read. Uh, and then Bill Hybels and his wife, Lynn Hybels, wrote a book called Rediscovering Church. And I read books by these guys. And, you know, notice he didn't read his Bible. So I'm not sure that they agree on every issue of, of doctrine, but they were both doing something that I thought, oh, my gosh, it could happen because... Here are two guys doing it. I'd never seen it done. Yeah, and I think it's noteworthy that Bill Hybels and Rick Warren are notorious Bible twisters who scratch itching ears. You don't believe me? You just open up the your copy of The Purpose Driven Life. I know you have one sitting on the shelf. And read the first two chapters. And what you do every time there's a biblical reference mentioned in The Purpose Driven Life just go to the end notes because he doesn't actually give you the citations there in you know in the front part of the book, and take a look at how he handles scripture and ask yourself this question: Is this text, when I put it back in context, being used rightly by Rick Warren? Is he correctly handling God's word and sh- and actually rightly teaching it in a way that makes me understand what those texts are saying, or is he twisting God's word? in order to basically turn it into a balloon animal and twist and bend it into any shape he wants to. Believe me when I tell you, it's the second. But, you know, this is way before the Internet got popular. Um, but I began to discover, oh, my gosh, Bill Hobbles has done this, and Rick Warren has done this. And so one of the things I started doing when I started saying it could happen is I started looking at, I started looking for those examples of people that had gone before me and had actually done what I wanted to do. I didn't look those who deviated from the biblical ecclesiology and were testing this and succeeding at this brand new purpose-driven ecclesiastical vision casting model. Right. Look for people who had theories because people who have theories have usually nothing more than that, a theory. You don't have a conviction until you're willing to put your theory to a test by actually taking a step of action. And so that's what I did. Um, I, I started going, man, not only should it happen, but I started believing in my heart that it could happen. Yeah. So there you go. Well, that's kind of phase one here. We're, we'll listen to a little bit more of Perry Noble sometime this week. But I wanted you to hear it. And, you know, and along the way, I'm asking the tough questions. Where in the Bible does it teach this? Why is he passing this along as if it's something that Christian pastors need to be adopting and implementing in their own ministries when God's Word has clearly laid out the, uh, the, the, the duties of the biblical office of pastor, and what he's saying has nothing to do with what God's Word actually says along those lines. Think about it. 
All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're heading to Las Vegas to with the verb and listen to a sermon about margin by uh, Vince Antonucci. Don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously, Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Hey, have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run! Never fear, nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via the verve in las vegas vince antonucci presiding the name of the sermon is room to breathe the lost art of building reserves 
The sermon description from the Verbs website reads, If life has you stressed out and fed up, you're not alone. This week's message will help you create margin and find peace so that you can prioritize what really matters. Of course, the question I have is, where in the Bible are all of the great margin passages? Maybe they're right next to all the ones that teach vision casting. Yeah, (laughs) you kind of get the idea. So let me go ahead and back off on the music here, and we'll go ahead and get right into our sermon. So without any further ado, here is Vince Antonucci and his sermon on margin. Uh, Here we go. In his story, How Much Land Does a Man Need?, Leo Tolstoy writes of an ambitious peasant named Packholm who, after gaining more and more... So notice he's starting with a Tolstoy reference, not a biblical passage. I think that is actually important. ...more land, heard of a, a deal in a far-off country. And so he traveled to the land of the, the Bashkirs, where he uh, started to negotiate with the village elder who seemed like a fool. The elder told Packholm that he could have all the land he wanted for 1,000 rubles a day. Packholm didn't understand. What kind of rates is that? A a day? How many acres would that mean? And the elder replied, we don't reckon the way you do. Uh, We sell by the day. The amount a man can walk around in a day will all be his for a thousand rubles a day. And uh, Holmes started to get excited. He said, a man can walk around a lot of land in a day. And the elder started laughing. He said, and it will all be yours. There was only one condition. Uh, the, the, if Packholm didn't return to the starting point by sundown, he would forfeit his money and the land would not be his. Packholm was ecstatic and he spent a sleepless night dreaming about all the land that would be his. Uh, he rose at dawn and went with the villagers to the top of a hill where he found the elder sitting in a chair with a hat open next to him. And, and so Packholm took his thousand rubles and he put it in the hat and, uh, and he started. He began walking and he would dig holes along the way to mark what land would be his so that he could determine what was his. And, and uh, the going was easy and he was enjoying it. And he, and he thought, oh, I think I'll go about three miles and then I'll turn left and start to make a square. And, and Packholm kind of hurried through the morning going further and further and further to add more land. But finally it was noon and he looked back and he realized that he could barely see the villagers at the top of the hill where he started. He began to worry. Maybe he had gone too far. Maybe he wouldn't be able to get back in time. But he thought, no, no, I'll be fine. And I just need to move faster. By now, his bare feet were bruised and cut. and His legs were weakened, but he could not rest and he could not take less. There was no question about that. And so he struggled on walking faster and then running. He worried that, that, that he had been too greedy and, and the fear made him breathless. And so he just ran for, faster. His, his shirt soaked, his, his throat parched, his lungs working overtime, his, his heart beating like a hammer inside of him. He was terrified, thinking, all this strain will be the death of me. And, and he actually feared death, but he couldn't stop. He thought about the villagers and, and thought, they would think me an idiot. And so he just kept 
going. And finally, he was close enough to hear the Bashkirs cheering him on at the top of the hill. And, and so he summoned his last ounce of strength and began running even faster. And, and then he reached the bottom of the hill. But before he could start going up it, it was suddenly dark. The sun had set. Pack home groaned and he couldn't believe that he had failed and would lose his money and not get the land. But, but then he realized that he could still hear the, the Bashkirs cheering at the top of the hill. He realized that though the sun had set for him at the bottom of the hill, it hadn't yet set for those at the top of the hill. And so he just summoned everything he had and began running up that hill. Finally, he reached the top and his legs gave way and, and he fell and grabbed the hat. The elder started laughing and he said, oh, well done, well done. That is a lot of land you have gained for yourself. And Pacom's servant went over and tried to help his master, lift his master up to his feet. But Pacom was dead. The servant picked up Pacom's shovel. He took it from Pacom's dead hand and he dug a grave and buried him six feet from head to heel, exactly the amount of land a man needs. Question. Imagine that you're the doctor filling out Packholm's death certificate. What would you write under cause of death? Greed. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't know. So we're getting a Tolstoy parable. All right. What killed Packholm? Another question. If right now you're feeling kind of dead, maybe emotionally, spiritually, financially, physically, what's killing you? What's killing you? So I'm feeling emotionally dead. What's killing me? I, I don't feel that way. Today we're starting a new series called Room to Breathe, four weeks long. And we're going to talk about a concept that will resonate deeply in you. Like you're totally going to get this. But we are going to use some terms that might be unfamiliar to you. Uh, terms like limit, loads, uh, margin, reserves. And, and so I want to explain. Yeah. Um, are those biblical terms? Because, you know, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that I have commanded you. Yeah, um, so don't you think if we're supposed to teach what Jesus has taught and commanded, that the words that we use in church are going to be biblical words? It's if we're making disciples, you know, if that's really what you're doing there at the verb, don't you think that biblical words would be good words for the people there to be learning and understanding what they are and what they mean? Explain these terms to you, and I want to tell you what all this has to do with God. And maybe through doing this, we're going to get to the core of what's killing you. So to, to define these uh, words, I, I want to use a piece of paper. I think this will help us. And so uh, if you imagine a piece of paper, you can fit a certain amount of words onto that piece of paper, right? And the amount that you could fit onto that paper is the limit. So we're starting with an illustration, second illustration too. So we got the Tolstoy parable, and now we've got an illustration but we don't have a biblical passage. Isn't the point of a sermon illustration to help us understand a biblical text? Why are we starting with an illustration without a biblical text? What are you helping me understand? 
that that paper is capable of holding, the, the limit, right? And then the amount of words you actually put on the paper, we could call the load, right? It's the, the load that that paper is actually bearing at this time. So there's the limit and the load. And the limit minus the load are the margins, right? It's the amount of unused space. And so the, the limit minus the load is the margins. And, and having margins on a piece of paper, you, you grew up having to put margins on paper, you, you, but you probably never thought about it. It's really essential. Like it makes it much easier to read what's on the page. Let me give you an example. I want to show you two pages. Both pages contain the same exact words, but one has margin and the other doesn't. And the one without margin is much easier to read. And not only that, uh, having the margin allows you to add something, right? Like, like if you wanted to write a note or two on the side, you could do that because there's unused space. So the terms limit is the amount of words a paper can hold. Load is the amount of words the paper is actually holding. And margin is the amount of space that's not being used. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this has to do with sound doctrine, God's word, and Jesus in what way? Here's the deal. Your life is actually a lot like that piece of paper. We, we may not like to... Ad- uh, my mom always told me that life is like a box of chocolates, and so this idea that life is like a piece of paper with margin, like it's totally confusing me, man. To admit this, but we have limits. We all have limits. Now, we are told that we don't. Like, if you watch TV, half the commercials are going to tell you that you have no limits, that you can do anything, have anything, go anywhere, you can be anything you want to be. But that's not true. It's just not true. We have limits, right? There's only so much I can do. There's only so much money we have to spend. There's only so much time I have to give. There's only so much energy I have available to me. We have limits. We also have our load, the, the amount that we're actually giving, the amount that we're actually spending or, or using. And then we have margin. We have whatever's left, right? But we could also call that reserves, right? It's Reserves would be like margin. It's the amount that I have in reserve because I'm not currently. Is it that the Bible's too short? You know, that it's difficult to, you know, actually, you know, keep people's attention while preaching through God's word? Is, is that the problem? Using it, right? It's the amount that I'm not using, not spending. And so naturally, the more we give, the, the more we spend, the more we do, well, the less margin we have, the, the less reserves we have. And with, with that piece of paper, you could actually put so many words on that piece of paper that it starts going off the page, right? Like that you're, you're writing words off the page. And, and I guess we could call that overload. Like the load has gone beyond the limit, so it's an overload. And that describes a lot of our lives. A lot of us would say, man, my life is an overload. It's not just that I don't have margin, but I'm spending more energy than I really have. I'm spending more time than I have. I'm spending more money than I have. In fact, probably the easiest way to think about this, just to get a good grasp on it, is with finances. It's just easiest. So, so like if we spend a little less than we earn every month, what we're doing is we're building up savings, right? We call that savings. So, so then when the refrigerator dies or you have an unexpected hospital bill, it's like, it's okay because we haven't spent the amount that we earn every month and we've got some in savings. We have some reserves or some margin to spend. 
If instead we spend the exact amount that we receive every month, then what we have is we have no savings. We have nothing in reserve. And so when something unexpected happens, it sends us into overload, right? It's like now, now I'm in trouble. Or if we spend more than we bring in every month, then we're just living in overload. And what that leads to financially is bankruptcy, right? And so with our finances, margin is spending a little less than we earn and and overload is spending more. Now, now that's with finances, but the truth is, man, that applies to just about every area of your life, your time, your relationships, uh, your emotions, your, you name it. In in all those areas of your life, you have uh, a limit, you have your load and you need margin. It just makes our lives way easier to to live and allows us to add things when we have to. If I couldn't, I get, like get this information from like a good time management book. Um, maybe go to a Franklin Covey time management seminar. Um, you know things like that. You, um, you know, uh, why are you teaching this during sermon time? The job of a pastor is to preach the word don't have any margin, what happens is my life will end up kind of slipping off the page. Inevitably, something's going to happen that will throw me into to chaos, into stress mode, into, into depression, right? But with finances, it leads to bankruptcy. With emotions, it leads to burnout. If you're, if you're feeling kind of dead, then, then I guess we could just say, in a, in a sense, it leads to death, right? Now, my guess is that you probably know if this is you. Like hearing this, you're probably like, man, that's me. Or maybe some of you are like, no, I don't, I don't think I'm living that way. But, but just to help you to, to be clear on this, I, I want to make some statements. And if you, uh, if you hear these statements and think, yeah, that's, that's me, I, I could make that statement, then this is probably you. And, and if, if you hear the statements and you're like, I couldn't say any of those, none of those describe me, well, then this probably isn't you. So I'll make these statements. If you want, you could close your eyes and kind of imagine, is that something I would say or not? You don't have to close your eyes. This isn't the part where we pickpocket you or anything like that. It's like, your eyes are closed. Let's get them. Um, so, uh, so, ready? So, if you want to close your eyes. So, so, could you say this? Could you say, man, I, I just feel overwhelmed. I feel overwhelmed. I'm really not having much fun anymore. Is that you? I barely have any time to care for other people's needs. So did Jesus die on the cross to help people have margin in their lives? I don't even have time to care for my own needs. The people closest to me, like my family and my close friends, I don't think they really feel loved by me. My lower back is tense. Mm. So if you're having back problems, you know, um, Jesus has the solution for that. Yeah, we've got a big problem here. Why is this a sermon again? God would have to shout out loud to get my attention because I have so little quiet time in my life. I resent people who ask me for help. I live on caffeine. I need it. I, I find that I worry a lot. I avoid people whenever possible. I, 
I just have this sense that I just have this sense that Vince Antonucci didn't have enough time to actually like study the Bible in order to come up with a biblical sermon. Maybe he'll pull it out at the end. I don't know. Things are slipping out of my control. Like I don't feel in control anymore. I have trouble sleeping at night. I don't really care about much anymore. I don't have a lot of passion in my life. I get, I get these weird chest pains. I, I have a nervous tick, like my eye just does this thing. I lose my temper quickly. I don't expect things to get better anytime soon. All right, so, so hearing those, if some of those describe you if, you, if you think, yeah, I could make some of those statements, well, then this is you. And as Jeff uh, kind of asked earlier, I expect this is probably, to some extent, all of us. And if it's you, you may wonder, where did this come from? Like, why is it that my life ended up this way? Because this isn't the way we want to live. And, and so how did it happen in my life that, that the margins were crowded out? What, what's the source of me feeling so overloaded? Well, the truth is there's a lot of sources. And what's interesting is people didn't used to live this way. Like this isn't just like a human. It's like, eh, we're humans. This is, a human. this is not a human thing, okay? which is encouraging, by the way. It means we don't have to live this way. It's not a human thing. It's a cultural thing. We deal with pressures that were unheard of in the past. Did you know that the term stress didn't even really exist before 1950? It's true. Obviously, you know, people have always had things to concern themselves about. But it wasn't until the 1950s that doctors began to notice and name this near chronic sense of, uh, of being overwhelmed and, uh, and anxiety ridden. Did you know that spending in America on mental health has increased over 100% in the last like 20 to 30 years. So, so what's going on? What are the sources of us being so overwhelmed? Well, well it's things like work. So uh, people, at least in America, work way more than they used to. Uh, there's a, a book called The Overworked American, and the author, Juliet Shore, uh, she says that employees in the United States are now working at a rate, actually she, she did, said this in 1987, that in 1987, employees were working at a rate of more than one month extra per year compared to employees in America in 1969. It added a month of year of work time to our lives, and it just keeps getting worse. Another source for us is accessibility. It used to be there are all kinds of time in your life when you could just get away, right? You just got away. No one could reach you. No one could throw problems at you. Now, most of us are accessible everywhere we go. We have cell phones through which we get texted, emailed, voicemailed. You know, people are calling us all the time, right? And, and all this technology that, that was supposed to... Oh, sorry. Wait one second. I'm just fooling. <laughs> I told somebody to call me. Uh, but, but the truth is, uh-huh. but, but the truth is, what's happening is this technology that was supposed to free us up is actually loading us down, right? It's also the choices that we have to make. 
So, so we make choices that people in the past did not have to make. Experts say that the average person, the average American today, will make about 638 decisions every day. And they're not including habits. You know, we're not talking about, should I tie my shoes? Things that you just automatically do, they're not counted. 638 decisions a day. And every decision requires a certain amount of energy. Now, you don't think of it that way. You're like, it's just normal when I choose what I'm going to eat. But, but every decision you make takes a little bit of mental energy, a little bit of emotional energy. And so you're losing reserves, right? And, and poor decisions really eliminate reserves. And, and all these decisions we have to make, it's a pretty new phenomenon. Right? Like you, you study history and you realize it, it used to be, and not, not that long ago, that you didn't choose where you would live. You lived where you were born. That's where you were going to die. It used to be you didn't choose what career you would have. You did whatever your parents did. It's just the way it worked. Way back then, your choice for entertainment was nothing. There was no entertainment. It was like you could sit and talk. It's like, you want to do something fun tonight? We could sit and talk. Like, like that was all the entertainment there was. There was no choices of what you could do, right? And then suddenly there was TV, and we had three channels. I, I'll admit my age. I'm old enough. I remember being really little and having three channels. And now we each have dozens or hundreds of channels to choose from. It used to be there was like four brands of soap to choose from, three types of toothpaste, two kinds of shampoo, and one kind of cereal, cornflakes. And you better like them because that was your only choice. Now there are six different varieties of Cheerios. Like I can't even just choose Cheerios, you know, and, and don't even talk to me about Pop-Tarts. I get overwhelmed by the choices. I can get my honeycombs strawberry blasted. So Jesus came to solve the, the stress caused by having to choose between the six Cheerios and the upteen million Pop-Tart varieties out there. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Like, it's crazy, right? And and experts tell us every time we make a decision, we're losing emotional and mental and uh, reserves. They're leaving, right? And and so experts also tell us changes in our lives also drastically make us lose our margin. When we have, uh, uh, when we move, when we we get a new boyfriend or we upgrade our car, every change takes away a little of my reserves. Also, all the activities we do, all the activities our kids do, all the information that we receive, like, like this, the, the blitz of media that we're kind of subjected to every day. All these things eliminate reserves. They, they, they take up our margin and take us right off the page. And we become overwhelmed and we start to feel overloaded. Now, you may think about all that. You may look at all that and you may feel kind of helpless, right? It's like... What can I do? Like, it's just, that's life. I have to be accessible. I, I have to work. You know, I, I need my TV time. You know, and so what, what can I do? I have to make all those decisions every day. Now, keep in mind that people made decisions to, you know, pack the kids into the car and head over to church, you know, at, in uh, Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, Vince Antonucci is a vision-casting leader, seeker-driven guy. So this is a flourishing little mega church out there. And the question is, um, you know, when they made this decision, did they sit down and think, okay, by making this decision, am I really learning the Christian faith and being a disciple of Jesus? What does this have to do with being a disciple of Jesus? So far, yeah, I have no idea, no clue. And we're more than halfway through it. 
Cutting back just doesn't feel like an option. And there is a degree to which some of this is unavoidable. But one of the things we're going to do in this series is we're going to challenge you to really examine yourself. We're going to ask you to look inside and try to determine what is it that drives me so hard? What is it that drives me so hard? Why can't I say no to anything anyone asks me? Why do I feel the need to keep on buying more stuff? Why do I always need the newer whatever? And throughout this series, we're going to offer you, I think, some really practical advice on, on how you can make some changes. Just practical advice. Is that what the, the Christian doctrine is all about? Offering practical advice to help people with the stresses of life? Start building reserves and creating margin in your life so that you have room to breathe. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to hit some really specific topics. Like, how do you create time reserves in your life? How do you create physical reserves in your life? But, but to- what does this have to do with anything the Bible says? Today, I want to be a little broader and just uh, give you and, and think about some wisdom from the Bible. Just- mm, so we're finally going to get to the Bible. Can't wait to find out what this has to do with the Bible. Start dealing with this problem that so many of us live with. And I think that's probably the first place we need to start is to realize it is a problem. A lot of us haven't thought of this as a problem. It's like, it's just life. It's the way we all live. But, but that's not the way we're supposed to live. It is a problem. We need to recognize that. And check this out. It's not just a problem for you. It's also a problem for God. It's also a problem for God. Because uh, God created you, God loves you, and God has a better life for you to live. So, so like with my kids, you know, if I could look forward and see that they're going to live lives where they're always stressed out and they're always dealing with anxiety and worrying and they never have enough time to do the things that are important to them, like that would break my heart. And you have a a father in heaven who loves you and it breaks his heart if you're living a less than life. If you have a... Yeah, where in the Bible does it say that God's heart is broken when we live a less than life? I mean, what you're describing are the symptoms of a cursed and fallen creation due to the fact that we sinned against God and we're all born with a sinful nature. I mean, if you're going to talk about symptoms, don't you think you ought to get to the root, you know, which is sin? I mean, I don't think God's sitting there up there going, oh, I'm so, my heart is breaking, man. Look at all those people that are living without margin. You know, I, do, I don't see God really his heart breaking because of that. Bible with you. Um, turn to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to get there in a, in a minute. And- okay, Matthew 11. Uh, <laughs> I know what this chapter says, and I'm not sure how it connects. And um, if you don't have a Bible, that's no problem. We put all the verses on the screen for you. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we give them out for free at the Velcro bar, which is our connecting place. You can just grab a Bible. Um, See, it's a problem for God because he created you and he loves you and he wants what's best for you. Uh, This is why uh, part of the reason Jesus came. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, we'll put it on the screen. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And then he says, but I have come that they may have life, they as you and me, and have it to the full. Yeah, that's John 10, 10 out of context. 
Now, I'm not going to do it this time. I've done this many times throughout the uh, history of Fighting for the Faith, gone back and explained how John 10.10 out of context is being misconstrued when it's used like this. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Have it abundantly in the context of a sermon teaching you that God wants you to have margin. Yeah, that's not what's going on in John chapter 10, verse 10. And the three rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context, which means you have to actually go back to John chapter 9, verse 1, and read, keep reading, read all of 9, read into 10, and then read until that section is finished in 10. It's almost two chapters in order to understand the immediate context of what Jesus is saying there. And what Vince is trying to make Jesus say is not what he says. You don't believe me? Open up your Bible, John chapter 9, verse 1, and keep reading almost all of those two chapters, 9 and 10. You'll see what, what Jesus is talking about. So he says, the thief comes to steal and kill, destroy life. I have come to give you life. But when he says the thief, Jesus is talking about Satan. And I, I know it's a little bit like, for real? Like, isn't that like a cartoon thing? I, I'll say Jesus believed in Satan, and so, so do I. And he says that, that what, what Satan wants to do in your life is make it so that you're not really living life. Like you're alive, but you're not really experiencing life. Jesus says, I have come that you might have full life, abundant life. I want you to live life where you're not stressed out. You're not overwhelmed and overburdened, but instead... Yeah, John 10.10 10 is not Jesus saying, I don't want you to live without margin and be stressed out. That's not what he's talking about there. Instead, you have real joy and you have a sense of peace. And so maybe the first thing we need to understand is that this is a problem for us, and it's also a problem for God. This is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, this is really good. He says, uh, starting in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary. I think a lot, before a lot of us said, yep, that's me, right? We're weary. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke Upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That- now, let's look at the context that Jesus says that in. Okay, John, uh, not John, Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So what's the context? The context is Jesus calling down woes on the cities that would not repent. 
Well, repent of what? Their sins and their false legalism, the legalism of the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the heavy laden with sin, heavy laden with the burden of a false religion that says that you are made righteous before God by your good works. And Jesus is saying, repent and woe to you because you haven't. And he's saying that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. He's not talking about time management here. That What Vince is doing with this passage is absolutely criminal. That is a great verse. That's a great promise from God. A, a yoke was an instrument usually made of wood that would go over the backs of two animals. And, and the reason was so that they would walk and work in unison. So you'd have like two oxen. You'd put this yoke on them so that they would walk in the same pace, the same rhythm as they dragged a big plow behind them. And, and so Jesus is, is making this offer to, to you and me. He's saying, hey, connect with me. Like, live a connected life with me. Get yoked to me. And what I'll do is I will teach you a new rhythm for life. I will teach you a new... No, Jesus is not saying, I'm going to teach you a new rhythm for life. You are ignoring the context in which Jesus said these words. ...pace to walk through life with, to to do your work in. And, And what will happen is this new way of life will lead you to rest. To rest for your soul. So so instead of living in a way... The rest for your soul that Jesus is talking about is the forgiveness of your sins and a right standing before God by everything that Christ has done for you. ...that you always feel burdened and stressed out, you're going to start to feel free. Jesus describes that life as easy and light. Pretty good. I I love another verse uh, in a book called 1 John 5, verse 3. Uh, It says, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And then check this out. And his commands are not burdensome. So so it says, listen, if you really love God, you're going to do the things God asks you to do. You're going to live your life the way God wants you to live it. But here's what you need to understand. That's not a burden. Yeah, this can only be said to Christians because they have a right standing before God because they have been made right because of what Jesus has done for them on the cross and his righteousness is imputed to them by faith. And now we are set free, and we are free in Christ. The law has been silenced. It can no longer accuse us. And the law for Christians, this is third use of the law, is it shows us what God's will is. And this is why James calls it the law of perfect freedom. If slavery is, if sin is slavery, living according to God's will is what true freedom is. But see, you've kind of skipped something here, Vince. Uh, you're a seeker-driven guy, which means you know, you're purposely trying to reach out to people who are unchurched and make Christianity relevant to them. But this keeping of God's law is a real burden for somebody if they think that they're made right before God by doing that. And so you haven't told them about repentance, the forgiveness of sins, and the fact that we have a right standing before God purely by grace alone through faith as a gift from God. Yeah, you're, you're kind of skipping ahead to you know, Christian sanctification and third use of the law without using the first use properly. That's not a burden. That is freeing. God, God is trying to help you live a life of freedom, a life that is easy and light. And so if you're feeling overburdened, then you're not living life God's way. I don't say that in a condemning way. 
I say that in a uh, hopefully a way that. But see, the thing is, is you're saying if you're living your life overburdened, well, then you're not living life God's way. But I'm not trying to condemn you. But see, you are condemning them because that's what the law does. If I'm not living life God's way, then I'm sinning. And the wages of sin is death. And God sends people to hell for sin. I'm not trying to condemn you. Yeah, actually, you're doing that because you're not rightly distinguishing the proper functions of God's law. It's encouraging. Like, there's another way. There's another way to live life. God came to offer us another way to live. If you're feeling overburdened, you haven't found that life yet. And so what God is saying is, hey, listen, let's connect in such a way. I'll teach you a different way to live. And we're going to talk about that these next three weeks, a way where we can create margin, find room to breathe, and live the abundant life that Jesus is offering to us. With just the, the little bit of time we have left, uh, and to kind of set the tone for the rest of the series, is we'll, we'll get more specific. I want us to take a quick look at Jesus. So, so in that passage, he, he said, learn from me. And so he's saying, there, there are some things that you can learn from me about how to do life in a way that will free you up and, and that's easy and light. And Yeah, Jesus, when he said, you know, learn from me, he wasn't saying, hey, you know, follow my example, and you, and you can kind of look at what I'm doing as a moral exemplar of you know time management in order to have a you know margin in your life, that is not what he's talking about in that text. And so I want to actually encourage you if you're not currently reading something in the Bible, like maybe some of you are like, oh no, I'm doing the verb reading plan, awesome. But if you're not currently reading something, why not make a commitment to read uh, through let's let's say the book of Luke in the New Testament, which is one of the books that goes through Jesus' life. Just read a chapter a day. It will work out uh, with this four week series pretty pretty evenly. And as you read, you're gonna, there's going to be all kinds of cool stuff. There's going to be miracles. There's going to be cool stories. But but what I really want you to do is pay attention to how Jesus lived life. How did Jesus live life? And there's some things I think you'll notice, like. One of the things you'll notice is that with all the Bible tells us Jesus did, like from teaching to healing the blind to raising the dead, there is one thing that is conspicuously absent. Jesus never ran. He was never in a hurry. What? What? Jesus didn't use Twitter either. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) What kind of lesson is this? Like, you, you never see him going... Guys, let's bust our butts and get over to Capernaum. I'm late. You know, there's things to do. Like, that never happens. He never ran. You also notice that Jesus always created time to spend with God. You're going to see this repeating pattern in Jesus' life that he would just go off by himself. He might, like, climb a hill or something. And he would just take, like, often, like, several hours just to pray and talk to his Father in heaven. Now, you might hear that and think, it must be nice. Like, it must be nice to have all that free time. Trust me, Jesus had way more demands on his time than you ever will. Like, as you read the stories, you realize everyone wanted Jesus. Everyone wanted a piece of Jesus. Thousands of people were trying, clamoring for Jesus' time. But still, he found time to spend with God. He had to because that was his resource. That was what gave him energy to to, to do the things he needed to do. I hear so many Christians today, and and I've been guilty of this too, who who say things like, and I I would love to take time to pray each day, but I'm just too busy. And it seems like what Jesus said was, man, I am so busy 
I have to take time to spend with God and pray today because that's what's going to get me through my busyness. Another thing you'll notice is that Jesus was able to say no to people. He was able to say no to people. Like, like Jesus did what he could. You'll find that he's the most compassionate person ever, like clearly. But there were always hundreds, thousands of more people who were sick, who were hungry, who wanted his time, wanted... But, but Jesus was able to say no. He, he didn't feel like he had to meet every single need. It, it's interesting because he was God, like in the flesh, but... In the flesh, he he was also a human. And as a human, Jesus had limits. And he chose to live within them. And you can do that too. Also, you'll see that Jesus really did care for people. And you'll see how he did it. it. It seems that Jesus had a strategy. His method for caring people was to focus on the person standing right in front of him. Now... I don't know about you, but to me, the person standing in front of me is often an obstacle I need to get around because I have something I need to do. I have an agenda, right? They're saying, and so it's like, you're in front of me right now, and I, I, there's somewhere I need to go. But Jesus wasn't like that. It was like, whoever's right in front of me, that's the person who needs my attention. That's the person I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show God's love to and, and serve in this moment. Very cool. I, I think it had something to do with the way he lived. You also see that Jesus didn't need the approval of other people to feel good about himself. He wasn't driven to to do things outside of his plan, outside of his priority, because other people wanted him to. Yeah, again, you are really reading between the lines of Scripture at this point to come up with these observations. And as you read that, I think you'll realize, man, a lot of times the reason I'm saying yes to things I don't have time for, I I, I really shouldn't do, because I want you to like me. And I know this isn't the right thing to do, but I need you to like me. Jesus wasn't that way. You also notice that that Jesus spent lots of time just hanging out with friends. Like he thought relationships were really important. He would just laugh with people. You also see that that Jesus believed in a heavenly father who was taking care of him. Like it's just real obvious. So so like one time, uh, he he talked about this quite a lot, but one time he says this in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 26. He says, um, he says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Yeah, and that part of the Sermon on the Mount, what was Jesus grinding on? He said, oh, you of little faith. It's not that just that Jesus knew that he had a heavenly father. He was preaching in a way to cause these people to see their sin of not trusting God and not having faith in him to to saying, I'm sorry, I do believe. And Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his, not your own, his righteousness, and all these things that you're stressing about will be added to you. See, part of the reason Jesus wasn't stressed and, and overburdened is because he knew that God was in control. And, and so he didn't need to, like, grab the steering wheel away from God and, and take over, which is actually very ironic, right? Jesus didn't take the wheel. You, you can kind of picture him and Carrie Underwood singing a duet. No, no. <laughs> No, no, no. Yeah, this is just getting ridiculous at this point. We continue.
wet. And Carrie's like, Jesus, take the wheel. And Jesus is like, actually, I don't take the wheel. And she's like, take it from my hand. He's like, no, I leave it in the Father's hands. And Sorry, that wasn't that funny. It was really poor singing. I, I, I'm sorry. But, but it's just kind of ironic. He didn't take the wheel. Another thing I think you'll notice, and I'll end with this, is you'll notice that Jesus taught us to be content. He tells lots of stories, and the point of the story often is like, um, hey, you don't have to get more. You don't always have to be trying to clamor and pursue and get more because God, God's been good to you. And so you can just learn to be happy. You can be happy where you are with what you have. And as you read, and I, I hope you will, I hope you'll read through the book of Luke or you can read through the book of Matthew and just see how did Jesus live life? What, what, what did he teach us about how to live? Ask this question. I'd ask it over and over every day. Well, what can I learn from him? Not, not about like heaven and spirit. What can I learn from him just about how to live my life on a day-to-day basis? Like, this- So just ignore what Jesus actually taught and see if you can just kind of glean, you know, you know, life lessons from how he lived his life. Good night. What would it mean for me? Not people back then, not people in general. What would it mean for, for me, for you, to be yoked to Jesus? What would that really mean? What would it look like for me to live life at Jesus' pace? If Jesus had chosen to live life in modern-day America, like I am, like you are, how would he have lived it? Can you picture Jesus at the Last Supper texting you go, I'm sorry, guys, like, wait one second. No, I, I just, I, I just need, I don't think. Would, would Jesus choose to live 12-hour days or to work 12-hour days? And, and as you read about Jesus' life, just keep thinking about yours. Are you running around trying to get all you can, trying to have it all and do it all, but thinking all this strain will be the death of me? But for some reason, you find yourself unable to stop. You just keep going. Maybe you have this thought in your head, that, that you, this, this fear that if you slow down, those people might think I'm an idiot. What's driving you? What is it that's driving you? And whatever's driving you, do you like where it's taking you? Is where it's taking you where you really want to end up? Well, you have some assignments, and, and, and I hope you'll take them seriously, and, and I hope you come back for each of the next three weeks of this series, and, and I hope that you will discover, in fact, I expect that you will discover that there is actually an art of building reserves, and that you can learn from God the art of building reserves. Right now, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a little bit of time uh, just to breathe, uh, we, we do this every week. We uh, have the band play a song, and, and we just try to give you a few minutes in your hectic life, and, and maybe this may be one of the few times in your week. I hope it's not, and hope we learn not to do this, but, but where it's like, I'm just going to sit and do nothing. I'm just, I'm just going to do nothing. Here's something I would, I would encourage you to use this time. So you're not going to pray? Are you going to pray? I mean, <laughs> you're just going to end by letting people do nothing. Okay. For maybe today. What if, what if you tried this? What if you, um, you tried as best as you can to become uh, as aware as you can of God's presence? The Bible says he's here. Just try really hard to become aware of God's presence. I don't even know what that means.
grace with you. And, and so just as best as you can imagine it and, and become aware of God's presence. And then maybe this. What if you kind of imagine yourself taking each part of your life, you know, your, your finances, your job, your marriage, and handing it to God? How about this? What, what if you handed to God each area of your life where you realize that you are limited? That'd be every area. So just imagine, you know, handing, you know, here's my checkbook. Here's my, uh, my work schedule. Here, you know, what? Your life, I think. But, but, you, but you just say, God, I've got these kids. And I, I don't know, God. And, and so I, I give my kids to you. I give my, my parenting to you. God, my finances, like I give that to you. And, and you just kind of imagine yourself giving each part of your life. What is this supposed to solve again? Life to God. Maybe you want to do that. Uh, during this time, we also have communion available. If you'd like to make that part of your experience this morning. You're just going to make communion available? You're just going to leave it in a dog dish or something? Is this any way to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Communion's on the tables around the room, and it's a piece of bread and a cup of juice that represent Jesus' body and blood uh, given for us on the cross. Yeah, let me read to you uh, what has come to be known as the verba, the words of institution regarding the Lord's Supper. It actually says what it is. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. And what, what the Bible teaches us is that for you and I to have this life, this full, abundant life that Jesus came to bring, and an and eternal life in heaven with God, that the price was Jesus giving up his life on the cross. That that's what he had to do to take away our sins, to usher us into a connected relationship with God. Now, we have a word for a phrase for what we just heard. That's what we call a gospel nugget. And it's at the very, 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 very end of the sermon. So there was the gospel it came in and went out really quick, but it was there present. It made a cameo appearance. I hope you you, you weren't blinking, otherwise you would have missed it. And so um, if you're there, if you're somebody who's accepted that, would like to remember and thank Jesus for that, you can grab the elements of communion and bring them back to your seat. And when you're ready, you can take those. And um, if you're not there yet, that's totally fine. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, and you can just use this time to just breathe. Okay, so uh, first I'm going to pray for you, and then we'll give you that time. Let's pray. Yeah, done, done, done. That was a train wreck. So kind of the question on the table today is, uh, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching all that I have commanded. Did we really, if you were a disciple of Jesus, did you really, really learn anything about Jesus sound doctrine, what scripture really teaches, or anything that Jesus actually taught? Answer, no, not at all. And that, that lame excuse for the Lord's Supper, is, it's, it's actually blasphemous what they're doing. Holy guacamole.
What did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you. Grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins.